0: So uh, speaking of summer, who went to a Christian summer camp growing up? Mm-hmm. I see you out there. I see you. I also went to a Christian summer camp a couple of times. When I was 15 years old, I went to the largest Christian summer camp in America, located in Missouri, not surprisingly. Um, I came back from that time. Like, it was great. I had a great time. I lived in California. It was a long trip. Um, I came back totally fired up. Uh, and I had like, um, you know, like an experience with the Lord, like it was good, like really felt like I grew in it. And I had a realization and some conviction around like the music that I was into because I lived in the Bay Area and I listened to punk rock and you know, yeah, thank you, Dan, we'll talk later. <laughs> um, yes, yes, we miss yeah, it's all right, yeah. That's, we just listened to our vinyl records now, which is, you know, it's, it's really punk to pay $40 for a record that you can get for free online. I'm talking about myself here, people. Um, so, anyways, I'm really—I lost the—I lost the thread there. Uh, I had this realization at summer camp, this conviction from the Lord that kind of the music that I was into—it wasn't helping me spiritually. It was sort of—it uh, wasn't like I felt guilty about it, but you know, music like has a power, like an emotional power, and usually like. The kind of music that I listened to and was, was just driving me towards anger, you know, because that's what sells to 15-year-old boys. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it was not helping me in my spiritual life. I had that realization. And so I took my about 70% of my considerable CD collection, and a CD is a little round disc that you put in a thing and it spins around and plays music, for those of you who don't know. Um, I took about 70% and I threw it in the garbage. Um, And that was, like, for somebody who had no money, right, and spent all their monies on CDs, that was a considerable thing. Um, But here's the thing. This was around, this is like, 1999, 2000 or so. Um, And shortly after this, like, Napster became a thing right? So in about a year's time, Napster is like a, a, you download music, you steal music online, <laughs> and then you listen to it. So in about a year's time, I had downloaded all the music that I had thrown in the trash, like, but, but I had a digital copy of it. and I was listening to it uh, again, like by the next summer. Um, and honestly, like looking back, it's sort of humorous like the things that i was doing when i was young and that i thought were so like so big and how how flimsy they really really were like there's there's something funny about it i didn't really like if anyone were judging the situation i didn't accomplish anything by throwing those cd's away right because a year later i had it all back but I wouldn't trade that experience. That was an important experience for me. Because that moment was probably, it remains, probably one of the most like significant moments of, of worship in my life. Because it was a moment of worship. It was responding to God. To, to, he was doing something, telling me to do something. And I, and I, for the first time, I recognized that something in my life was, was an idol. And I responded, I think, appropriately by throwing it in the garbage. At least for a while. <laughs> Until I figured out how to get it again, Right? Um, and I can laugh about it, but it was good. It was something that I did sort of hastily, right, from from emotion and impulse, but I think it was still good, and I think it was still of value. We've been waking our way the last couple of weeks through a, a uh, series called Everyday Disciples, and our focus has been uh, on the disciplines, right, the disciplines that disciples practice, and that's that's just like It's right there in the Word. It's something that I really believe is true, that if we're going to be disciples, followers of Jesus, we're going to be practicing disciplines. We're going to be doing certain things that Jesus taught his disciples to do. And I'm operating on that simple idea that disciples, people who are committed to following Jesus, are sustained in their faith through practices. Things like what we talk about, like prayer. Uh, things like um, worship, like we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Very simply, we've been using this definition. Uh, Ryan made a joke this morning. He saw my slides, and I had this definition up, which you've seen every single time uh, throughout this series. Um, He said, oh, I didn't know what what, what disciplines were. I'm glad you defined it for me. But yes, I just continue to do this. Just so you remember, disciplines are activities within our power that enable us to accomplish what we cannot do by direct effort right? Why discipline? Not because discipline is mature or not because being like self-controlled is, is awesome and being serious is better than being not serious, but simply because disciplines enable us to accomplish things that we cannot do on our own. Disciplines help us to develop things that we have no direct means of developing, right? So so like Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, 35, uh, Jesus gives the greatest commandments. What's, you probably know it, all right? I've got it up here. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This is a difficult commandment. Why is it difficult? Because how do I just decide to love the Lord your God, not just like a little bit, but with all of my soul? And with all of my heart and with all of my mind, it's not something that I can by direct effort just choose to do. I cannot flip the switch or find the switch in my heart that turns on the love to the max, right? I don't know where that is, but I do believe that there are ways that I can do that. I can grow in love. I can practice disciplines. I can live the life of a disciple and that will put me on the road To becoming someone who is obeying this commandment. It's really the premise that I'm going off of here. The obedience that Jesus calls us to isn't, and it's like it's a big whole life thing. It's not about making one or two good important choices, though making good important choices is good. The discipline and the obedience that Jesus calls us to is more than that, It's about taking all the big stuff as well as the the unimportant little stuff and actually understanding that it really matters. That the life that I'm living and the habits that I'm just practicing and the things that I'm doing in my life, they actually matter because all of it ends up shaping my character. All of it matters because it turns me into somebody. The things that I'm doing in my life, the disciplines that I have, whether they're intentional or unintentional, are shaping me and they are making me into a certain type of person. And I have the ability to become the sort of person that Jesus calls me to be if I'd follow him, if I'd be a disciple and practice disciplines, caring about his will for my whole life. And the discipline of worship what we're focusing on this morning, I think, is a huge part of that process of discipleship. So I think we just need to think a little bit like, what is worship anyway? Uh, in the church, we tend to think of worship as the 20 to 25 minutes before the announcements, which is before the sermon, right? So we just, like, we could say, oh, we just did worship, right? And there's, there's an extent to which that's true. That is what worship is. Worship is, particularly congregational worship is, is God's people coming together and singing praises to him, right? That is a way in which we worship. But that doesn't, uh, it, it, worship is not reducible to that. Worship is, is so much bigger than that. I would actually just say, this is my function, functional definition for worship. It's right here. Worship is an embodied act of devotion to God, an enacted expression of love for God. It's what we do, it's something we do in our bodies, right? Not just in our minds, but in our bodies in order to express our love to God. And so so we do that in the 20 minutes before the announcements. Yes, we do that. But we can do that other times as well and in other ways. Um, Maybe one of the most powerful acts of worship in the Gospels is uh, in Luke 7. And it's just a crazy, it's a crazy thing. I'm going to read it to you. One of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, Jesus. Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume what a scene. Uh, it's not something that happens very often. See, see, this woman hears that Jesus is near and she is just compelled to go to him with her whole self, right? An embodied act and, and do this uh, act of devotion to him, to worship him. And it's worth noting that this woman who is worshiping Jesus is doing it right. She's as, as a person. She's as her whole self. She's getting up. She takes something with her. Something that is actually very costly, a jar of perfume, and that day would have been very expensive. She takes it with her, and she brings it to Jesus' feet, and she washes Jesus' feet. Now, now, I, my point isn't that worship involves cleaning someone's feet with your hair. That's not my point. Like you might be thinking, is that why you're growing your hair so long? You're almost there. You could almost do it. It's like just a few more inches, and I could wash people's feet with my hair. No, this is a haircut from laziness, people. This is the this is the this requires the least work from me on a daily basis. That's my discipline of long hair. Anyways, um, I'm not saying that you need to wash people's uh, feet with your hair, but I'm just saying this very simple thing: when we worship, we're doing something with our bodies. Or, in other ways, worship is not just an interior discipline. When, we, uh, when we, we do things, when we worship, we sing, right? We sing. That's why we come together. And that's like the best way that a congregation can worship together without causing a lot of disruption, right? We can sing together, join our voices, praising the Lord together. Um, we can dance, right? That would cause a lot of disruption. We would get a lot of injuries if we were dancing, right? And some people would be weirded out and they say, these charismatics are crazy, right? Well, that's okay. That's, you, know, you can dance if you want. Oh, I'm not going to sing a Led Zeppelin song right now. Um, we can like weep before Jesus. We can give something to Jesus, like this. This woman, she's doing something with her body. She's giving something to Jesus. Sometimes we can give financially to Jesus, like, and that is a beautiful thing. We can speak, speak words of praise. Things that we do with our body for the sake of expressing our love and devotion to Jesus. That's all worship. And I, I think because of what worship is, we also need to note something, <laughs> uh, something that I think is, I'm just going to say it quite frankly, worship is unapologetically weird. It's a little bit weird, okay? And I think it's better to just to just understand that. Like, in any context, it's weird. I mean, it's weird even if you're alone in worshiping. You ever, you ever get the experience? Like, I, do you ever embarrass yourself for some of the things you do? Um, like, it's weird, like, you go into a room by yourself and you're like, I just want to talk to Jesus or sing to Jesus, and then you, you sometimes have this thought in the back of your head, what if someone hears me and they're going to think I'm such a weirdo? Um, and that's okay. Like, that's part of life. I'm just saying it's, impor- it's important to understand that, that worship is a little weird. And, I mean, look at this scene right here. Talk about weird. Like, if you were sitting there across from Jesus and this woman just comes up, takes this perfume, pours it out, starts weeping and washing Jesus' feet, and Jesus is just like, no, no, keep, keep keep talking, we don't, just, it's okay, she's doing her thing, like, this isn't weird, and like, he's not weirded out, but everyone else around him would be super weirded out by what was going on. In, in other parts of the Gospels, not in this particular uh, part of Luke, but a similar thing ha- happens, and all the disciples are like, whoa, 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 Jesus, like, we cannot allow this to happen, like, it's just like a waste of a lot of money, and it seems extravagant, and every time Jesus is like, no, it's fine, like, she's fine. This sort of thing is fine. I appreciate this sort of thing. Everyone else is weirded out by it, but Jesus appreciates it. I mean, even here in this context, things are a little bit weird. Uh, the Pharisees, right? This, this Pharisee guy is in, in the Pharisee's house, and Jesus is, is, is sitting down there, uh, and, and this Pharisee guy, he is pretty judgy about what's going on. He thinks this woman who is a sinner... and who he wouldn't even talk to, and Jesus is letting her her anoint his feet, like, she just thinks she's kind of getting in the way, and she's being strange and, and, like, really into Jesus in a way that's making this Pharisee uncomfortable. He can't believe that Jesus would allow this to go on or he would allow this person to be involved in his life in any way. way. And, And Jesus actually talks to Simon, the Pharisee, about this. He says this a little bit later on in Luke. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. See, worship, the the kind of worship that Jesus loves and appreciates, despite its weirdness and awkwardness, he's okay with it, comes from this great love for him. Those who didn't love him will look at this and say, that's just weird, right? They'll think, isn't this all a bit much? And the truth is that, yeah, it is. It's a lot. Spending time worshiping God will always seem like a bit much and a little bit weird to people who just don't get it, who can't comprehend why they would love this person, this God, why they would love Jesus this way. Because, because you, you can't, can't explain worship who don't, to uh, worship to Jesus to people who don't love Jesus, because they look at Jesus and they think, "Well, he's just this guy. Like, what's the big deal about him?" So, I want to think about that question: like, what is the big deal about Jesus? Why worship him? Why is he worth worshiping? Why is he worth loving? Like love, like that's it's not something that I do to everybody. Like do I really have to love Jesus? Well, Jesus explains it here. Explains where the love of this woman comes uh, from. He says her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. See, worship is always an act of gratitude for God's love and mercy. We love Jesus because we understand he's loving to us. He first loved us. He's merciful to us. He's forgiven us. That's where the love comes from. It doesn't come from something in you. You don't have a natural love for Jesus, but he died for you and you recognize that. And that's where the love comes from. Romans twelve one, probably a verse you guys know well, it says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Recognizing that God's merciful, recognizing that He's loving, go and worship.
1: Like worship it only makes any sense and comes from someone who's
0: understood God's love and God's mercy. And I think that's the big challenge of worship. It's the big challenge to an ongoing and disciplined practice of worship. Because what I'm arguing is that worship is an act that is based in an understanding of God's love and mercy. Uh, Essentially what I'm saying is that it involves recognizing and appreciating something. The love of God demonstrated in Jesus. And then acting accordingly. But the problem is... But what I'm describing is something that involves just more than just the mind, right?
1: It involves more than just the mind.
0: It involves the heart. It involves the emotions, and it involves the will. And I don't know how to just flip a switch to those things. Because because of what worship is, it involves the whole self, right? It involves the whole self. It's not just a mind thing. It's, it's a, an act, an expression of love. It involves the whole self. But the problem is... Well, I might be in a place where I can confess, like speak out, know the truth that God loves me and that he's merciful to me. Where I I might be in a place where I I can say and believe that what he's done is significant and meaningful. I am not likely, and I'm just saying this so that everyone knows, I am not likely to always feel that way. You are not likely to always feel appreciative to Jesus for what he's done to you. And I'm just saying, that's normal and that's okay, and you can still have a worship life, a life of and, and, and a devotional life to Jesus, despite that, that accounts for that.
1: So what do I do when I don't feel
0: like worshiping? When I don't just have the emotional connection there. Because when when I do something as a discipline, I'm talking about doing it as a regular practice, like putting it on a calendar and saying on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. I'm going to do this thing, right? And I'm not sure if I can count on my emotions to match up with my calendar, right? That's a problem. If I'm not feeling it, why do it? Because if it's love, how can I have that love and have that act of worship if I'm not feeling it? But I think it's right here that we really have to reevaluate some of our assumptions about worship. I would argue that the discipline of worship is not something that we can only enter into when we feel a certain way, but actually worship is the single most powerful means available to us to actually change the way we feel. You get it? Like, it's not like, oh, I just, I'm gonna worship when the stars align and I feel the right way. No. Actually, I can enter into the discipline of worship with a confidence that God's gonna meet me there and that it's gonna actually the emotions and the stuff that that will follow. If I, if I, if I stand on what I know to be true, that's that Jesus loves me, He cares for me, He's, He's been proven Himself over and over again to be worthy of worship. I can worship confidently and the emotional part will click. It's okay. I think one of the most entrenched lies in our culture is that we tend to believe about ourselves is that we don't have any resources available to change how we feel, that our feelings are just absolute, and, and, and we, we believe that they are not only just absolute, but we believe that they're sacred and inviolable and true, ultimately which if we just think about it for about 10 seconds, we know can't be true because they change, (laughs) right? So how can it be? they be ultimately true if they're constantly changing. And don't get me wrong. Look, at
1: because Christians have done
0: this thing and it's not been good, where they're basically saying, ah, feelings don't matter. Forget feelings. Just power through. And that is not what I'm arguing here. I'm saying that feelings, my my whole self, like my whole life, my thoughts, my feelings, um, my whole life, it does matter, but it's not that I'm stuck wherever I'm at in any moment. What I'm saying is, we don't need to feel a certain way to worship. Rather, worship is how we can develop an appetite for God. It's how we can develop those feelings of love and devotion. Even so, so, and, and, and also, it's great when I do worship and I have those feelings, right? Right? My camp experience, right, coming back from camp, I was full of emotions, and that was a good worship experience. But I can still worship the Lord, even when things are not just clicking. Psalm 34, 8, David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And in the context of the Psalms, if you have some time, go back and read Psalm 34. It's really great. It It is not just a... Only those who know this should should go ahead and do this. It's a, hey, everybody come, see. I'm inviting you in to know the fact that God is good. I'm inviting you in to worship. Taste and see that he's good. You might not know it. Come and have a little bite. See that the Lord is good. And that it is good to be a person who takes refuge in him. His logic is not, if you believe it, worship him. His logic is, if, uh, if you worship, you will find out how true it is. The emotional side, the, the connection will come. Throwing away my CDs did not change my life, right? Not in the way that I expected. I thought, oh, I'm done with these things. And time proved otherwise, but it did show me something that when I come to God and when I worship and I just like, like go ahead and do in obedience the thing he's called me to do, which is just to worship to him, to express my love and devotion to him, I find that he's good. And I also find something else that proved itself very true very quickly in my life. I'm not. I was not coming, throwing my CDs away, with a confidence that I wasn't going to take them out of the garbage via the internet later. I was coming with a confidence that he's good and that he was going to accept my worship like, like even impulsive and you know, teenagerish as it was. No offense to the teenagers in the room. You guys are awesome. Keep going. This uh, one year later, I was back in the same place. But that didn't change the fact that God who knew when I was throwing these CDs away, this was, he knew this was not some big transformative event for my music life, right? He knew that I was going to go back to this all in a, bit, in a little bit. He knew all that stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that he was kind and gracious, and I believe genuinely like appreciated my worship in that time. See, here's the thing. Worship is not for perfect people. It is not for perfect people. Worship is not for people who have any right to God because they've thrown their CDs away, and they're never going to get them back again, or they've given something to him, and they're never going to take it back to him. That is not who worship is for. Worship is specifically for the undeserving, specifically for the undeserving. No one is worshiping God in heaven who deserves to be there, not a single person. You and I don't get to worship because we're good. We don't get to worship him because we are worthy of him. We worship in a confidence that we are actually undeserving, and that is entirely by his good design. One of my favorite uh, passages, and I've talked about it before, is Hebrews 12, okay? And there's a lot of context, but I, 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 thought, I thought, oh, am I going to have time to explain this? But I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway, so hopefully it'll make a little bit of sense. What, 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 what are The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who that is, the writer of Hebrews is doing is they're contrasting The old way of worshiping God, the old covenant, the way of the law versus the new covenant, the way of the spirit, right? And they're contrasting what the Old Testament, right? The old way of of approaching God was like. And in the beginning of Hebrews 12, 18, he says this, describes it. You've not come to what could be touched, right? to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and to storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. He's just describing sort of the the Exodus scenes on, on Mount Sinai. To those who heard it, begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. What he's doing is describing this scene where God makes himself known and how he wants to be worshipped, bringing down the law to the people, and it was a scary, terrifying thing for them. They were freaked out, but they continued to worship, but they were like, they were like worried because they knew they were so unworthy, and they saw if an animal went up to that mountain, it was struck dead, like, because this was a holy place. So their worship was full of fear to the point where Moses is trembling with fear and yet continuing to worship, and contrasting to that old way, the old covenant, he talks about what... Or He or she, we don't know who the writer of the book of Hebrews was. The writer of the book of Hebrews talks about what the new covenant was like, describes it this way. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to a myriad of angels, to a festive gathering not a solemn, crazy, oh, hand-wringing, fearful gathering, to an assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in the heavens, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirit of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. There's tons of like allusions to Old Testament texts there, but the point that's being made is that the people who are here having a party, worshiping God in heaven, they are there not on the basis of their good works, but on the basis of the blood of Jesus, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Cain killed Abel, and we see in Genesis that his blood cried out for vengeance. That was a word of condemnation. Jesus died. His blood was poured out, and his blood speaks a better word. It's there's forgiveness for unworthy people, not vengeance. There's all around a myriad of angels in a festive gathering, the assembly of the firstborn the most honored of children, right? How do you have an assembly of firstborns? It means that everybody's the firstborn. Everyone's been given the honor and that they come before Jesus on the basis of what his goodness has established and won for them. We are all firstborn children of God given honor because of what Jesus has done, partaking in his inheritance as the righteous one. He says, it's surrounded by the spirits of righteous people, Made perfect. If you go back in Hebrews 11 and this list of righteous people is just a bunch of doofuses. <laughs> Those are the righteous people that he's talking about. And they were right, not because they were so good and perfect, but because they believed and trusted. They listened to God and they enacted faith and they worshiped God and they stood on the basis not of their own goodness. And so on the basis standing out of their own goodness but on trust in what God was going to do to deliver them, they are righteous people made perfect. Everybody in heaven does not deserve to be there. And that means something crazy. It means that when we worship God, we worship as people who don't need to put on a show anymore. So I don't need to put on my feelings show. Right? I don't need to say, well, I can't get to this place of, of, of speaking out what I know to be true, that, that God has done something in my life, until I feel the right way about it. Because it's not on the basis of your goodness or anything inside you that you're able to even speak out words of worship to him anyway. It's not about putting on a show. We can come full of the right emotions or devoid of them, lacking them. We can still come. We can come as tired people, confused people, lost people, angry people. Not that any of that's commendable, but we can come just as we are before the Lord because I wasn't coming in and able to worship him because I was so good anyway. So what does it matter that I'm so bad and so lost right now? If I simply come by faith to the one who accepts even broken people, I'm still coming the right way. We can come just as we are because he's faithful so we can worship without pretense, without pretense. Um, Tozer says this, and he's talking about spiritual maturity in general, not particularly worship, but I, I, just, I just thought this was worth sharing. He says, then also, as we're mature, we'll get deliverance from the burden of pretense. By this I mean not hypocrisy, but the common human desire to put the best foot forward. And to hide from the world our real inward poverty. For sin has played many evil tricks upon us. And one has been the infusing into us of a false sense of shame. There's hardly a man or woman who dares not be just what he or she is without doctoring up an impression. The fear of being found out gnaws like rodents within their hearts. I think what Tozer here calls a false sense of shame that just keeps us, keeps us persistently from from worshiping, from enacting the discipline of worship. We find it easy to worship when our emotions are in the right spot, usually because we just went to summer camp or we just like went to church and it was good. But most of the time we consider our emotional state an obstacle to worshiping God. We feel, we feel a lot of things. Like we feel, we feel guilt, guilt for the things we've done, not considering the basis on which we, we have standing with God, which is what Jesus has done. We feel un- unworthy, right? We, we feel like, man, like how could I come before a, a God who's holy and who's done so much for me, and yet I'm just, like just unable to, to measure up to what he calls me to. So we have this false sense of shame, but it's false because you were never right with God because of how you felt or what you did anyway. It was never on that basis that you had a relationship with God. You only ever had a relationship with God because he's gracious and kind. That's the only reason you even know the name of Jesus. It's the only reason that you even know who God is because he reveals himself, because he wants to be known for who he is. And who he is is one who takes away sin, shame, guilt, and invites us in. To know him how do we worship god when we feel unmotivated well am, am i am i am i yeah, have a relationship with god because of my great motivation <laughs> i'm the guy who's just doing the lazy haircut thing i am an unmotivated person come on it's not myself it's not my discipline my, my 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 self-control that makes me right with jesus It's that my shame or my motivation or my guilt, it has nothing to do with my relationship with God. He's torn the veil. He's torn the veil to the point where anyone who comes in by faith, trusting Jesus, all of it's taken away. So I don't have to act like anything that I'm not because I wouldn't do a good job of it anyway. pretense, and shame keep me from worshiping the Lord. And I just want to tell you something simple. It just doesn't have to. It just doesn't have to. You can worship the Lord. You can worship as, as, in a disciplined way. And so just really, really practically, what might that look like? I mean, honestly, it probably just looks like taking 20 minutes a week to just say, I'm going to do something here. Like if you're a musical person, singing is good. Like singing somehow taps into our emotions in, in, in a way that's healthy. Like singing to the Lord is good. So take some time. You know, I, I used to lead worship every single week at my old church. I was the worship leader and executive pastor there. And and I uh, when I moved here, I... I I didn't really have a discipline of worship because I was doing it all the time. It was like in my calendar is my job, right? But then I, you know, it's it's not my job anymore here as as I'm moving here. And I I realized pretty quickly, shoot, I need to worship. Like I need to build some time in my calendar where I'm being weird and people are going to hear me, you know, I'm going alone and, you know, you're singing, you're playing the guitar and even if you close the door, people are going to say, what's he doing in there? You know, and you just go and you do those things. You go and worship. If you're not a musical person, that's fine. You don't have to sing. I'm not going to force you to do that because then it would be really weird, right? Um, but you can just take some time aside to just, just talk to God, to praise him, to worship him. Um, John Wimber, who I know some people don't like or whatever, but uh, he, he would always say, and this is probably very common in Charismatic uh, language, but I never, never heard it growing up because I was in, like, super reformed churches. Um, so, like, we're just ministering to God when we worship. I had never thought about that. Like, oh, I can minister to God. Like, I don't have, like, I mean, because I know what it is to minister to people, to pray for people, but I can minister to God. I can just say, like, hey, God, like, what can I do for you? And like, sometimes I think we think, well, I can't do anything for God. No, God loves it when we come and we express our, our love for him, our, our gratitude for him. We can minister to God in that way, and we should put that on our calendar and do it. We can do that by giving, you know, planning on giving. And, I, you know, you can give to the church if you want. Of course, we'd appreciate it. But give to the poor. God also loves that. But don't just say, oh, I'll do it when I feel like it, because I promise you, you won't. Especially not in this economy. No. (laughs) It's going to be fine. I don't know. We'll see. But plan on doing it and doing it as worship. You know, don't give from guilt or give from, you know, people twist my arm about it, or I guess I should, you know, if I want to put up the pretense, right? But do it because God loves a cheerful giver, and he loves people, and there's plenty of poor people out there. Give as worship. Make some time. Do it on the regular, on a regular basis. That's what I'm saying. That's really the point of all this, guys. This whole everyday disciples thing is we should do these things that we do spontaneously. Like, we should plan on doing them. That's the whole, it's been eight weeks we've been saying that. So hope it hasn't gotten too boring for you. Um, as the worship team comes up here, I just want to leave you with this one last thought. And it's, it's an analogy. So for the teenagers, you know, getting ready for the SAT, uh, this is a great analogy. It's probably on there. Worship is to the spiritual life as planting is to harvesting. I really think this is something we need to understand. A farmer puts a seed in the ground, and they don't put the seed in the ground because they already have so much that they don't need anymore. That's not why you plant, right? If you're planting grain, you don't say, oh, I've got so much, I better plant more, You put a seed in the ground in the hope and expectation that as you plant, you'll have an increase from it. You're going to have an increase from it. And they do this on the basis really of faith, right? Faith that things will work out the way that they should, the way they they oftentimes do, and that by doing this, wasting this little bit in the ground, they're going to cultivate something more than they have at present. I think that's truly what worship is. In my previous church, um, we did a lot of work in Malawi, which is in Central Africa. And like a lot of uh, Central Africa, Malawi would have cycles of drought. Every four to eight years, serious drought or locusts or other uh, major things would come. Um, And during the drought, the worst thing that a farmer can do is to eat their seed. You eat the seed, when things turn around, there's no way to move forward. Eating the seed for those farmers is a rash decision because it will guarantee that there will never be more in the future. You know, Worship is to the spiritual life as planting is to harvesting. Because I come and I worship, and sometimes I worship from poverty. Sometimes I'm worshiping from not having much, not having much emotional bandwidth, not having much love for God. And I could just say, well, the little that I have, I'm going to keep to myself. I'm going to treasure it and hoard it. But we're invited, I think, even when we have very little to give it to God as worship. And what we find is that as we do that, as we do that in a disciplined way, even from our poverty, we begin to reap a harvest. That's what faith is. Faith is the invitation and and discipleship makes sense because you will not always be as you are right now. You don't have to bear the burden of being stuck in the person who you are. I know it sucks to be yourself sometimes. I'm sorry, I just said the word sucks from the pulpit. I, that's generational problem. Um, I know that it is difficult to just feel like you're never going to be able to change, and you've been doing this for so long, but I really and truly believe that a spiritual life is built through just acts of worship. I can look back at my 15-year-old self, and I can laugh a little bit, but I see that as I did that thing, which didn't Yield the fruit that I thought it was going to do, it did teach me that most of my life is just jumping through significant moments of worship, right? And they, they are some of the times emotionally driven and sometimes silly, right? But I've learned over the years that moments of worship, investing what I have in, in, in the devotion of God, whether good times or bad times, has led to steady, slow sometimes, but steady progress. I didn't just throw my CDs away and suddenly didn't have any desire to be into things of the world. That's not what happened, but I did get a taste for how good God is. And that started to grow a hunger to experience that more and more. And so that's why we worship. Because we're going to have a harvest. One of these days, we're going to see how good and faithful, we're going to taste and see how good the Lord is. And so that's my invitation to you guys. Go out this week, spend some time, seek the Lord, worship him, whatever you're feeling like. Just just stand before him as you are and you can worship him. You can worship him. So let's do that together.